We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and open in your Bibles there, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 13, looking at the first six verses. I ask you to pray with me now as, as we begin. Father, we are grateful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have bestowed upon us richly and freely. We pray now that that grace would be manifested in our lives in open ears and soft hearts and eyes to see the truth of your word, Father. Give us, uh, give us the grace now to hear and then to obey, Father, what you have spoken in the scriptures. Help us to not be hearers of the word only, but hearers and doers of the word by faith so that you would receive the praise and the glory for the work of grace in the life of your people. Pray that you would keep me from error, Father, that I would speak things that are clear and accurate and faithful to the Scriptures. I pray, Father, that you would give us discernment. What a great gift it is to have a church that is full of people who are rich in the Spirit's discernment of the truth. Make us that kind of people, God. Help us to hold on to the things that are true and to be deeply rooted in them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to consider a question. It's an important question, even a pressing one. And it's a question I believe many Christians ask, but aren't always sure how to answer. So here it is. What can you do today, right now, to serve God? What can you do today to serve God? Right away, you can see why I say it's a pressing question. Serving God is the reason why we exist. As believers, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ in order to use our lives to magnify God, to put Him on display so that the world sees what God is like. What we do with our lives day in and day out is eternally significant. So it's a pressing question. What can you do today not promise tomorrow. You can't get yesterday back. What can you do today to serve God? And yet, even as we see the importance of this question, I would contend we're not always clear on how to answer it. We tend to limit our answer to things you might classify as quote-unquote ministry-related. So, preparing sermons, going on mission trips, giving a gospel presentation... That's what many people tend to think of when they consider serving God. But here's the problem with that answer. It's a problem of scope. It's not that those activities are wrong or unimportant. It's that they're not broad enough. You see, the scope is too small. Such quote-unquote ministry-related things occupy a tiny slice of life. And they concern a relatively small number of Christians across the ages of the church. So if that's what it means to serve God, then we're only giving Him a fraction of ourselves. The scope is too small. What we need then is a more comprehensive answer to the question. We need an expanded vision of what it means to serve God. God does not want a fraction of our lives. He wants all of our lives, every single part, fully devoted to Him and faithfully engaged in serving Him for His glory and for the good of others. We need a bigger scope for service to God. And in God's kindness, that's what we find today in Hebrews chapter 13. 
In this passage, our author clarifies what it means to serve God. Or we could say he gives us that bigger scope, that expanded vision we need as God's people. You can see this in our text right from the start. Look with me at the transition from chapter 12 to chapter 13. We're obviously focusing on chapter 13, but notice again how chapter 12 ended. Verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Or we could say, offer to God acceptable service. Well, what does that acceptable service look like? Chapter 13 is the answer. This passage is the answer. You see, this this final chapter in Hebrews is a bit different from the rest of the book, but it's not unrelated. These closing exhortations show us in very practical ways what it means to serve God. And what we'll find this morning is that serving God goes beyond a few quote-unquote ministry-related things. Serving God involves everything from our relationships to our bodies to how we view our possessions. In other words, offering God acceptable service doesn't call for a fraction of our lives, but for all of our lives. Every part fully devoted to Him and built upon His Word. So, with that in mind, let's give our attention now to this helpful text. From these opening verses in chapter 13, the author gives us three ways we can offer God acceptable service. Three ways we can offer God acceptable service. Let's read the text together and then spend some time considering these ways. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Pray now that God would bless the preaching of His word. As we said a moment ago, we're going to consider three ways to offer God acceptable service. The first is found in verses 1 to 3. True service to God calls us to care for God's people. True service to God calls us to care for God's people. If you'll look at verse 1, you'll notice right away the author's primary concern. It's something he's mentioned several times before. His concern is brotherly love. Notice what he writes. Let brotherly love continue. Christians should be known for many things, but near the top of the list, we must be known for loving one another. That mutual giving and receiving of affection within the body of Christ. And an essential mark of this love is that it endures It is persistent. You see, the author is reminding us brotherly love is not a one-time calling. It is our ongoing calling. Our ongoing service. We never reach the point as Christians where we can say, yep, I've loved other believers enough. On to the next thing. 
Friends, there is no next thing. This is it. We're always involved in service to one another. In fact, this is one of the defining elements of Christian love. It persists. It's stubborn. Christian love is affectionately stubborn. It doesn't split when things get hard. It doesn't bail out when the other person is unlovable. It is persistent. So let this be a challenge to us, brothers and sisters. Whatever our level of spiritual maturity, however far we get in the race, this call to love one another remains central to who we are as God's people. In one sense, every other ministry in the church is related to this foundational ministry. You could say there's only one ministry among the body. Love. Love. So by God's grace, let's give ourselves to this kind of persistent love. But you'll notice also that the author keeps going. And in verse 2, he gives us another mark of Christian love. Along with persistence, Christian love requires practical expression. Practical expression. Look at verse 2. The author exhorts us to not neglect hospitality. Now, we might tend to overlook hospitality, but according to the New Testament, this is vital service in the life of the church. In fact, if you look at most of the lists of virtue in the New Testament for the body of the church, nearly all of them include hospitality. It's a qualification for being an elder. He must be hospitable. So we might tend to overlook it, but according to the New Testament, this is a vital service in the life of the church. And if you think for a moment about the life of the early church, if we think about their example, you can see why this ministry is so vital. In the first century world, in the, in, the, in the era of the early church, travel from one place to another was much more difficult and dangerous than it is today. So people had to rely on the hospitality of others to help them along their journey. And this was especially true for the church. So various teachers would have to move from one place to the next. Think of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He's having to go from one city to the next. It's dangerous. It's hard for him to go. How does he get from one place to the next? He relies on other people. They provide housing. They provide food. They give him shelter. They restock his supplies. In fact, he expects them to do that. So that in some of his letters when he writes, he says, I'm expecting you to provide what I need. I mean, listen to how the Apostle John described it in his third letter, uh, Third John. The Apostle John says this, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So catch what the Apostle is saying there. Hospitality was vital for not only meeting needs, but also for the spread of the Gospel. So when the author of Hebrews mentions in verse 2 this practice of hospitality, he's urging us to this kind of thing. To, to share what we have in order to care for the needs of others. Then to press this a bit further, he gives us some additional motivation. Look at the last line of verse 2. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, that's kind of a strange statement. The author's probably referring to the episode in Genesis 18 when Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality to the three men. You remember the three visitors? Two of whom are later identified as angels. The author's probably referring to that. It's a hard phrase to interpret. 
I think. But at the very least, the author intends to raise our view of hospitality. By that last line in verse 2, I think he's trying to say to us, don't underestimate this. This is spiritually significant service. It's often the means through which God's blessing flows into your life. Don't underestimate it. And I do hope that that changes our perspective on hospitality. When we share a meal with someone or receive people in our home or any other, any other number of hospitable practices, we're engaged in what Scripture considers vital ministry. We're engaged in offering God acceptable worship and service. So just speaking very directly, those meals that you sign up for to take to other people in the church, those are more than meals. Those are expressions of God's care for His people. When you give a ride to that international student to the airport or invite someone to dinner who does not have as much family in this area, that's more than a car ride. That's more than an invitation. That is pleasing service to God. Friends, I don't know about you, but that spurs me on. That causes me to think differently about how I use what I have been given to serve others. It's more than fulfilling tasks. That's what I want to take away from this verse. It's more than meeting needs. Not less than, but it's more than that too. It's putting hands and feet on our desire to serve God. Even more, it's putting hands and feet on God's care for His people. Now, before we move on from verse 2, I want to make one more point here about hospitality. You'll notice the author mentions hospitality to strangers. That's actually what the word means. Hospitality means love for strangers. So he says hospitality to strangers. I think this is important. While our primary responsibility is to fellow believers, hospitality must not be limited only to fellow believers. This service should extend to those outside the church as well. In God's providence, He brings across our paths non-believers to whom we can minister this kind of hospitable care. Now, as I say that, you might be thinking to yourself, but that's a huge group of people. <laughs> How can I possibly give this kind of care when there are so many non-Christians and so many needs? So let me narrow it down for us. Think in terms of your neighbors. I mean, literally your neighbors. Think in terms of those people whom the Lord has providentially placed in close proximity to you and to your family. If we believe in the doctrine of God's providence, and we do, amen, right? If we believe in the doctrine of God's providence, then the people in your neighborhood or your co-workers are no accident. Those people are placed there on purpose. And God has placed you there on purpose, in their midst, in order to serve Him by serving them. And what's more, this kind of hospitality can often be the beginning of fruitful relationships that bear gospel fruit. Someone sent me an article a while back. I think, it was, I think Daniel sent me an article a while back that talked about hospitality as the 21st century's kind of leading edge of evangelism. And I think that's true. In our fast-changing world, this is the portrait of an evangelistically bold church. Not knocking on other people's doors, but opening our own. And saying, why don't you come in? Why don't we have a meal and share a conversation? And see what the Lord might do. 
So, just a final encouragement here on verse 2. Hospitality won't happen accidentally. It's not just going to one day be like, oh, hey, look what we just did. It's not going to happen accidentally. It requires planning and effort. But here's the good news. There's not one right way to do it. I started, when I was writing this, just make a list of ways that you could give hospitality. And when I got to like 43, I stopped or something. Because there's just not one right way to do it. There's a lot of ways. The options for hospitality are as broad as the range of needs and the gifts the Lord has given you and your family. So think about how God has wired you. Think about how He has provided for you and your family. Look at the needs around you and then offer to God this pleasing service for the good of others. We care for God's people persistently and we do so with practical expression. The author's not done with love. Look at verse 3. He's still not finished. He gives us one final mark. Christian love requires costly compassion. Costly compassion. The author urges us to remember those in prison and those who are mistreated. Now, to remember means more than mentally reciting the facts about something. It means to take notice and then to take action. Remember in verse 3 is an action word. So again, the author's calling us to the practical demonstration of love. Don't forget those who are afflicted. Don't forget those who are suffering. That's one of the worst aspects of suffering, isn't it? You feel forgotten. Other people notice your hardship at first, but then they move on. Their life keeps going, and so they move on. They don't mean it cruelly, but they do. But for you, it just, it just keeps going. The affliction's still there. The suffering's still there, and you feel forgotten. The author is saying, work against that tendency. Remember those people. Don't forget. Remember and then care for those in need in practical ways. Then he keeps going and he tells us what kind of attitude is necessary to make this happen. Look again at verse 3. Notice what he writes. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Friends, do you hear the solidarity in that verse? How are we to remember those in prison? As though we were there in the cell with them. How, and why are we to remember the mistreated? Because we are part of the same body. It's the application of Paul's image of the church as the body of Christ. This is the necessary mindset for Christian love. If we're all one body in Christ, then what happens to one part happens to all of us. When one member is afflicted, we should feel their affliction as our own. Without that mindset, without that kind of costly compassion, Christian love will not flourish. It will remain mere sentiment. Now, if we're honest will quickly admit this kind of compassion is beyond us. I, in studying this verse, this week, verse 3, just struck by how I can't do this by myself. I can't feel these things the way that I ought. So I'm not going to stand up here and pretend there is some easy path to being like this. There isn't a list of handy tips to, to make us more compassionate. This is supernatural love. This is supernatural love, which means it takes supernatural empowerment. And therefore, these verses should drive us to prayer. Why are we so slow to pray? These verses should drive us to prayer 
asking God to give us what we can't stir up on our own. So let me just ask you, do you regularly pray for God to increase your love for others? It's a spiritual gift of the Spirit. It's not natural. Do you consistently ask Him to give you this kind of compassion? We should, friends. Without the Spirit's enablement, we cannot have this kind of love in our church. So let's faithfully and fervently pray, asking God to provide, and then let's take care, take action to remember one another, trusting that that's how God answers our prayers as we step out and walk in faith. So persistence, practical expression, and costly compassion. Those are the marks of Christian love here at the beginning of this text. And by pursuing those marks, we live out the call to let brotherly love continue. True service to God calls us to care for God's people. And by God's grace, may that be true of our church and in increasing measure. Let's look now to the second way we can serve God. The second truth from this text, this time from verse 4. True service to God calls us to protect and pursue purity. True service to God calls us to protect and pursue purity. In verse 4, the author focuses on one of God's foundational institutions for humanity, the institution of marriage. We're not sure exactly the circumstances that prompted the author to write this, but it seems that some people in the community had fallen prey to a low view of marriage. Maybe they considered marriage to be too earthly to be of any spiritual significance. We know from other New Testament books this was a problem in the early church, and that's likely the case here. It's too low of a view. And so the author brings this exhortation in verse 4. And his exhortation is both clear and direct. Notice what he writes. Let marriage be held in honor among all. The, desire, the, the, the idea here is to have a respect for something, to consider it to be precious and valuable. That's how believers should view marriage as a precious gift from God. Now, it's important to understand here, the author is not talking primarily about individual marriages, but about the institution of marriage. Notice how he says honored among all. That is, among the entire community. So yes, a husband should consider his individual marriage to be precious, and a wife should respect her individual marriage as a gift from God. That's absolutely true. But the author of Hebrews is making a bigger point. He's urging us as a community, as a church, all of us together to hold the institution of marriage itself in high honor. And right away then, we see this is a profoundly relevant passage for us. There's nothing new under the sun. A low view of marriage in the first century. A low view of marriage today. Marriage in our day is besieged with controversy as the world seeks to redefine what marriage means. I'm not going to rehearse all the headlines that I could. You know it. And sadly, this, controver this controversy has often generated more heat than light. So much so that some Christians have begun to advocate the church withdraw from the battle. You have 
some theologians, some pastors, other public figures, essentially raising the white flag and conceding the definition of marriage to the culture. But friends, that is not a course of action we can follow. God's Word here in verse 4 requires us, it demands us, it demands of us to protect, promote, and celebrate the institution of marriage. Regardless of where we're at in our individual circumstances in life, verse 4 is binding upon the people of God. So, considering that kind of cultural climate, I just want to pause the exposition here for a second and remind us of three reasons why we, as a church, must publicly honor the institution of marriage. My aim here is to try as briefly as I can to answer the question of why. Why does verse 4 matter? What's at stake if we raise that white flag? So, three reasons. Number one, we must honor marriage for the sake of submission to our Lord. We must honor marriage for the sake of submission to our Lord. Marriage is God's institution. He established marriage and His Word defines it. Therefore, we should honor the institution of marriage as an expression of our submission to His Lordship. When we promote and protect marriage as defined by Scripture, we're showing the world the Lordship of Christ. This is always how people see the Lordship of Christ. When we put ourselves under His Word, there's no other way to show them that. You can say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord all you want, but if you don't live in obedience to His Word, you're lying. We must honor marriage for the sake of our submission to Christ. That's number one. Number two, we must honor marriage for the sake of our witness. We must honor marriage for the sake of our witness. While marriage must be honored, marriage is not ultimate. Christ is ultimate. And His gospel is the center point of all reality. Marriage, like everything else in the universe, exists to glorify Christ. So to abdicate the defense of marriage is to confuse the gospel and to weaken our witness. Make no mistake, friends, this is why the evil one hates the institution of marriage. Because marriage points to the great reality of the sinless Son of God laying down His life for His bride, the church. And nothing makes the evil one rage more than that gospel. That's why he hates marriage and seeks to destroy it. And that is why we must with every fiber of our being promote, protect, and celebrate marriage as honorable, as precious. We do so for the sake of our witness to Christ. That's number two. Number three. We must honor marriage for the sake of our neighbors. We must honor marriage for the sake of our neighbors. This reason, I believe, is too often overlooked. But it's incredibly significant. Think back to the founding of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So I'm just going to ask you to do a little brief biblical theology with me. Okay? Think back to marriage, the founding of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. You'll remember God created humanity in His image, both male and female. And He put the man and the woman in the garden in order to rule over the creation. That was their job, their mandate, so to speak. 
as God's image bearers. They were to be the pipeline through which God's goodness would spread out across all of the creation. Life would flourish as humanity lived out their calling as God's image bearers. And in the midst of that calling, God established marriage. Remember, God said it was not good for man to be alone. Adam could not fulfill the mandate on his own. He needed a helper. So God gave him Eve. God established marriage. Now, think about what that means. Think about what that says about the institution of marriage. It is a divine gift for the sake of human flourishing. It is a divine gift for the sake of human flourishing. That does not mean every person must be married to flourish. The Lord Jesus flourished like no other person who has ever lived, and He was never married. Rather, the flourishing here is focused on society, on the culture in which we live and work. When marriage is honored in a society, that society is blessed. That's that's the point. When marriage is honored in a society, that society is blessed. Families go strong. Men thrive through sacrifice and service. Women are honored and flourish in the use of their gifts. Children are protected and nurtured. Society flourishes. And that is why we must hold marriage in honor. Because in doing so, we love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, this is... This is about so much more than some idea of a culture war. This is about fulfilling our calling to be salt and light in the world. This is about living out the first and second great commandments. To love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, brothers and sisters, I hope we see a little more clearly why we must never raise the white flag of surrender. To do so would be to betray our Lord, weaken our witness, and show cruelty to our neighbors. Instead, by God's grace, we must consistently and winsomely protect, promote, and celebrate marriage as a display of God's goodness rooted in God's Word. Now, of course, this raises the all-important question. How exactly do we do this? Gave us three reasons why. So how? Should we run for public office or petition lawmakers? Should we produce art and literature that display the beauty of God's design? Should we study and think so that we can speak persuasively in the public square? Should we invest in both our families and the lives of others? Yes, yes, and yes, a thousand times yes. All of those things are viable options for Christians. There are many courses of action that we could take. But maybe surprisingly, the author of Hebrews highlights just one. Look at the second half of verse 4. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So how should we honor marriage? By living sexually pure lives. That's the author's point. Before we can honor marriage publicly in the world, we must honor marriage privately through what we do with our own bodies. Scripture is crystal clear. Sexual activity is a good gift that belongs only in marriage between a husband and a wife. God's judgment comes upon those who make a lifestyle of living immorally. 
Scripture standard is clear. And when we live according to that biblical standard, whether we are married or not, when we live by that standard, we establish a powerful countercultural witness in the world. Sexual purity shows the world there is something greater than marriage. Sexual purity shows the world there is something greater than sexual expression. There is the living God. And living in communion with Him is the best and most satisfying expression of life as a human being. I cannot emphasize enough how countercultural this is. We all know that, the, that our culture has degraded and belittled the institution of marriage. But that belittling of marriage is a consequence of what our culture has done in terms of viewing sexuality. When we divorce sexuality from marriage, the natural consequence is the destruction of marriage. But it's the divorcing of sexuality from marriage that comes first. And so what our culture has done is ripped the two apart and made them two separate things. And then they've taken sexual expression and raised it up as the supreme identity of a human being. So to be human, I must follow my desires. And the Bible would say, no, that's slavery. That's slavery. So when we live sexually pure lives, we not only bring back together what God has instituted, marriage and sexuality, but we also show the world, you don't have to live in that slavery. There is something more than marriage. There is something more than sexual expression. There is the living God. Friends, it's, it's, it is so much more than just not clicking on certain links or having certain kinds of thoughts and conversations. This is about witnessing to God's goodness in the world. Living these kinds of lives. So, I, I would be unfaithful to my responsibility if I didn't pause here and exhort us to examine our lives for any trace of sexual immorality. Remember, friends, the Bible's standard is both high and clear. Ephesians chapter 4. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. So let's examine ourselves against that standard. Let's bring into the light any hint of immorality. And as we do that, let's also remember the good news of the gospel that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, there's certainly more we could say on verse 4. But I hope what we have said has emphasized the importance of marriage and purity in the life of a church as a whole. These things are about more than our individual lives. They are about service to God and witness and love for others. True service to God calls us to protect and pursue purity. Let's look now at the final way of service. Verses 5 and 6. True service to God calls us to cultivate contentment. True service to God calls us to cultivate contentment. In verse 5, the author shifts from how we view marriage to how we view our possessions. And his exhortation in verse 5 has two sides, a negative and a positive. You can see it there in the text. First of all, we must keep our lives free from the love of money. In other words, we must resist greed. 
We must fight against that insatiable lust for more and more stuff. Don't let your life be defined by that kind of greed. Resist it. Fight against it. Put it off. But then there's a positive side. Not only must we resist greed, we must also cultivate contentment. Notice how he puts it in the verse. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You've got to do both. Be satisfied with the provision you have received. Both aspects of this verse are vital. It's not enough just to resist greed. We must also purposefully cultivate contentment. By the way, this is essential to understanding the New Testament's model for sanctification. It's both put off and put on. We often focus on the resist part. I don't want to give in to sin. That's good. That's good. But you've got to pursue something else too. Resist greed. Put on this contentment. At this point, we should all acknowledge what a difficult fight this is for us, especially in our culture. We are surrounded by excess. I throw away more food than most people in this world have ever even seen, probably. We are surrounded by excess. And most of the messages we hear on a daily basis are encouraging us to do the opposite of verse 5. We get the culture's voice constantly saying to us, don't be satisfied with this little pittance of what you've got. Love money, love stuff, get more. And that makes this particular aspect of godliness especially difficult for us. But mercifully, God's word is sufficient. The Lord is not surprised by the cultural forces we face. He is sovereign, and in his word, he has given us help for this fight. Look at the end of verse 5, where we see the reason for contentment. For God has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. That's the foundation and the fuel for contentment, friends. It's the promise of God's ongoing presence with His people. The author takes this phrase from the Old Testament, probably the book of Joshua. It's found several places in the Old Testament, but probably the book of Joshua. And you remember the scene there in Joshua chapter 1. The people are about to enter the land. Moses is gone, and the mantle of leadership is resting pretty heavy on Joshua's shoulders. And so the Lord encourages him. And the Lord says to him, I will never leave you. Regardless of what you encounter, you will always have what you need because you will always have me. That's God's message to Joshua. The author of Hebrews now takes that promise to Joshua and he applies it to us. How can we be content in our materialistic, stuff-saturated world? Because whatever happens to us, we will always have what we need because we will always have God. Does that mean we won't face lean times? No. Does that mean we'll never deal with financial stress? No. But it does mean we never endure those things on our own. We're never left to fend for ourselves. In every circumstance, the Lord Himself is with us. Now, it is striking to me that when the author wants to get us to be content, he he encourages that contentment with the promise of God Himself. Not just God's provision, but God Himself. Do you see then why a high view of God is so essential for living the Christian life? What we believe about God will shape every aspect of how we live. As A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that means the most practical thing you can do as a Christian is think rightly about God. 
It's God's promise that fuels contentment. It's God's holiness that drives the pursuit of purity. It's God's providence that creates our trust. So know Him, brothers and sisters. You are never wasting time knowing God. Know Him. Know His Word. Know Him in prayer. Remember this promise, the promise of His never-ending presence. And then put that promise to work in putting off greed and putting on contentment. The author then concludes the exhortation with a picture of what this promise produces in our lives. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is a statement of result. In light of verse 5, what can we say? So, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As he's done many times before, the author draws on the Old Testament to encourage us. This is from Psalm 118, which is why we read it earlier in the service. So the author draws on the Old Testament to encourage us, but this time it's different. This time it's different. Normally in Hebrews, the author cites the Old Testament and he presents God as the one saying the passage. But here he presents us as the ones speaking the passage. This is an incredible encouragement. Our day in and day out testimony, our confession of faith is the very Word of God. The Word belongs to us. And it now serves as the basis for our lives. So we can join with the psalmist in declaring this comforting truth. The Lord is our helper. The Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth. The One who clothes the flowers of the field and feeds the birds of the air. The Sovereign God, the Righteous One, the Eternal God Himself. He is our helper. He is the One who has promised to meet our needs and therefore we can live without fear. There is nothing anyone can do to us. That's not hyperbole. Yes, they can take our jobs. Yes, they can take away certain rights. They can ostracize and malign us. They can even take our lives as they did for so many of our forebearers in the faith. But they cannot separate us from the promises of God. Promises that have been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. This is the pathway to true contentment, friends. I can live with what I have because in Christ I have every good thing. More than that, in Christ, I have God Himself. The God who is wholly committed to my good. He will not leave us or forsake us. In fact, He cannot forsake us. God has bound Himself to us in the person of His Son, So we can confidently say with the psalmist, the Lord is my helper. My helper. I will not fear. True service to God calls us to cultivate contentment and contentment flows from faith that embraces God as everything we need. So what can you do today to serve God? You can care for His people. You can honor Him with your body. And you can be satisfied with what He has provided. Brothers and sisters, that is a life of acceptable service to God. That is a life that sees everything from relationships to possessions as existing to serve God and glorify His great name. May God give us the grace to serve Him in this way. And may we use our service, may He use our service 
to spread the glory of Christ across our city and even across this globe. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is sufficient and that in the scriptures and in the gospel, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We confess, Father, before you that we are often content with a very small scope for service and we give you a fraction of our lives. We confess this, Father, and we ask that you would help us now to give you all of us from our relationships to how we use our bodies, to how we think about our possessions. Help us, Father, to be wholly devoted to you. All of us engaged in serving you for your glory. We pray, Father, that you would make this so by your grace and for the sake of your Son's name. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Good.